they were leaders among men appointed to represent the monarchy in Australia. And each week we're learning more about the lives and achievements of some of Australia's governors and governors general through the eyes of University of New England historians and some of their experts there. From Captain Arthur Phillip to Australia's first female appointments, we're finding out more about their lives and how they made their way in the new world. From the good guys to the scallywags and those that were possibly highly questionable, this morning we're finding out about the nation's first Governor-General Lord Hopeton with uh, Dr Richard Scully, a lecturer in modern European history at the university. Good morning, uh, Richard. Good morning, Kelly. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for joining us as we begin this new series uh, this this year. What do we know of uh, Lord Hopeton's childhood and the kind of society he was born into? He was very much a classic uh, Scottish aristocrat, southern Scottish aristocrat. He was born in in 1860 in, in South Queensferry, which is where you'll see the fourth bridge these days. And he was uh, immediately the heir to something like 17,000 hectares around the uh, the Firth of Forth, some of Scotland's richest land. His life was uh, mainly about hunting, uh, shooting, all that sort of aristocratic stuff. <laughs> what did he look like? He was actually a very small, slightly built uh, fellow. He was um, always described as sort of willowy. He had a bit of a stoop... I think the bulletin described him as being a bit cat-like, and uh, he was clean-shaven, but I don't know if they had Movember back then, but he always grew an occasional moustache, apparently. <laughs> so what was his original title, and where did he go to school? Well, he was uh, Viscount Airthry, which was the courtesy title for the earldom of Hopeton, which was given immediately to the eldest son of, of the, the earl. Um, he was educated at Eton, so he wore white tie and tails every day, uh, just across from Windsor Castle. And uh, he was uh, then sent to the Sandhurst Military College, which in many ways was a bit of a classic kind of education for an aristocrat, even though it, it really co- covered basically rowing, debating, and not too much academic endeavour. Uh, that was before he, he became the Earl. He actually became the Earl while he was still at school at, at age 13 in 1873. Goodness. Was he very academic? Uh, no. No, he wasn't. Um, I mean, he was sent to the the Royal College, uh, the military college, largely because it was an appropriate place for the eldest sons of, of the aristocracy to go. Um, anything more than, you know, uh, the basics of academia was far less important than the social and the um, uh, other sorts of skills that he would develop there. So what um, career did he appear destined for? Why didn't he join the sort of the army or the, the military ranks or the militia as it was? Well, it was, uh, it's interesting to say a career. I mean, the, the, the career of an aristocrat in the late Victorian age was, was an entire lifestyle as well. I mean, he was uh, destined to effectively rule over a large number of tenants and manage that enormous inheritance. To be a classic grandee, it also meant that uh, he would take a role in the, the politics of the nation and indeed of, of the empire. Uh, and so it was very, not very much of a, a sort of a career that we would recognise. Uh, as, as I said, joining the army or going to Sandhurst was far more about uh, establishing a certain kind of social education and of uh, understanding the duties that were understood to be part of the uh, aristocratic inheritance. So how quickly did he, he marry and was it a love match? Well, he married a, a childhood friend, by the name of Alice. She was the daughter of another aristocrat, you can probably imagine, uh, in 1886. So they were only, well, he was only 26 at the time. Um, it's difficult to know how much of a love match it was because they had known each other from childhood. It seems like it may have been not arranged, but certainly 
you know, uh, appropriately thought about for some time. Um, they eventually had three children, um, and one of whom, the, the eldest son, was, uh, you know, he succeeded to the earldom. He eventually became Viceroy of India uh, in the last days of the Raj. Goodness. And do we know much about her, what she was like? It's uh, it's difficult to track down unless you go through the social pages, of course, which were all very polite. But the less polite press, like the Bulletin, for instance, the radical paper, you know, was very keen to emphasise just how haughty she was. <laughs> when did he start to become quite involved in politics? Is he, does he seem to move towards that? Well, as I say, it was a, it was inseparable from the sort of uh, noble uh, role in 19th century Britain. He he was a typical Victorian aristocrat. He was involved in conservative politics through the House of Lords, which he had a hereditary right to sit in. Uh, and he was already the Tory whip in the Lords, mustering numbers for, elect- for, for votes by his 23rd birthday. Uh, he became Lord-in-waiting to Queen Victoria, which was a very political role because you had the ear, the ear of the monarch uh, under successive Conservative administrations with just a break when the Liberals were in power briefly in 1886. So he was moving in that direction from a very young age. So he was first appointed as the Governor of Victoria. Why was he thought ideal for that role? I think largely because he was a conservative, uh, because he had the confidence and the ear of the monarch. Uh, It was a conservative government in 1889 when he was appointed. Um, But also because there was a significant shift in the kinds of people being sent out uh, as uh, vice-regal office bearers in that period, that late 19th century. There was a shift much more towards high aristocracy uh, to be sent out as governors and governors general. Um, It was very much a, a reflection of the increased importance that was attached to the empire, both politically culturally, and uh, it was also driven very much by a need to continue to impress the colonials with uh, (laughs) grandiosity. So Uh, what did the locals think of him? uh, Well, the the fact that he wore hair powder was uh, a bit of a shock when he arrived in in colonial Melbourne. Um, (laughs) He wasn't very healthy. He wasn't sort of a, a... frontiersman by any... But it was actually, it was quite interesting that he, he managed to make a lot of friends largely because he was so interested in what was then the big unifying sport in the colonies, which was horse racing. He was an excellent horseman. Um, and also he was very, very keen on the Federation movement as well. What role did he play in that? Uh, well, he was very much a sort of an outspoken supporter as well as being relatively sort of quiet behind the scenes, entertaining uh, the politicians who were interested in and pushing for federation, giving someone the sort of imprimatur of the governor was uh, in those days much more of a um, uh, an effective uh, mobilising effort than it is perhaps today. <laughs> it, it seems that there's a lot to sort of read about his um, balls and galas that he gave. What, what was his time as governor like? Well, it coincided with the the height of marvellous Melbourne and the the Victorian boom of the 1880s, so it was lavish. There were lots of receptions and balls and galas, and it's quite interesting when the the crash happened in the early 1890s, uh, he continued that rather lavish style, which in many ways... uh, helped people to cope, uh, helped, the, uh, helped the the ruling classes, the, the well-to-do of Melbourne society to cope with what was a, a terrible time for them. Uh, he, was, he became very popular with the people as well, as a matter of fact, not just because of these uh, lavish balls, but because he was also this, this pro-federal uh, character. And did he stay on as governor of Victoria for, for much longer, beyond the 1890s? He did. He stuck around until 1895, which was uh, a brief extension to his term before he actually headed back to... Uh, to, UK, to the UK 
uh, to join uh, another Conservative administration, uh, higher up actually. He was Paymaster General and he was Lord Chamberlain under Lord Salisbury in the uh, late 1890s and early 1900s. So all, as that all's going on, uh, sort of the, the Federation movement is, is well and truly powering along and they're looking for um, the next stage in, I guess, Australia's history. Why, why was he someone that was thought a, a good nomination as the first Governor-General? Well, he was very popular with the people of Australia, not just of, of Melbourne, which was to be the capital and Victoria, but also in, in New South Wales. And anyone who can be popular in both Victoria and New South Wales, that's that's the key, really. Um, <laughs> but of course, the, the Federation movement was very much something that was sponsored by the British government as a way of strengthening the empire. And uh, Joseph Chamberlain, who was the colonial secretary at the time, he was the the father of Neville Chamberlain, uh, he recommended um, Hopeton to Queen Victoria because not just of this popularity that he had, but also because he was a good supporter of Federation and also a good Tory, of course. Um, so he eventually came out to Australia in, in December of 1900. Unfortunately, he wasn't very well uh, when he came out. Typhoid, he caught it in India. Oh so he arrives and the uh, Federation movement is beginning and we're looking to see who our first Prime Minister is and he's, he's given the task. How does he manage it? Uh, not very well. Uh, he, <laughs> it may have been that he was unwell and it's clouded his judgment, but uh, the great uh, historian of the early federal movement, J.A. Lenores, has written a, a famous book, which is, I think still, you can still get it, called The Hopeton Blunder. And this really does describe his first interactions with the federal movement. He picked the wrong guy to be the first prime minister. Um, he, everyone had expected the leader of the federal movement was Edmund Barton, of course, to be the first prime minister. But Hopeton, uh, in possibly a, a misreading of protocol, actually asked the senior premier Premier of New South Wales, Sir William Lyne, to form a government. Um, Lyne was, had actually been anti-Federation, so it was a pretty bad choice in that sense. And, and after a few days, it was quite clear that nobody was going to agree to serve under him. So Hopeton retracted the offer and instead asked uh, Edmund Barton. Back in the days, of course, when inviting uh, a Prime Minister to form a government was not just a, a, a ceremonial thing, it was actually quite real yeah in those days. at that stage how how controversial how much attention across australia was that mistake given it was largely mostly controversial within political circles so that the the general public may have heard something of it but because it was retracted so quickly um it seems not to have had a very damaging kind of impact. <laughs> Did he appear to make the retraction based on the pressure placed upon him or was he was he directed to make the change? Ultimately, he was pressured. He discovered that, in fact, the federal movement was not going to comply. Uh, he was given a, a please explain a memo from the colonial secretary <laughs> who was very much in, in uh, the sort of mindset of, of accommodating Australian nationalism within the empire. So it was uh, it was all treated very politely, of course, because... He could always fall back on, on, on the fact that it was protocol and therefore once you've invited someone and they can't form a ministry, it's perfectly acceptable to move to the most likely candidate. I'm getting a real sense that this is a trivia question answer that I need to remember, so I'll, I'm locking this away now. But did it damage the, his relationship with Barton and other state leaders, that mistake? It was rather tense to begin with, uh, obviously, but uh, they, they were the consummate of professionals um, in this this colonial era, and so once the the retraction had been made and, and Barton had been uh, offered the chance to form a ministry, things went very well after that. Uh, they became quite uh, 
quite good partners, if you like, in the sort of the early federal enterprise. Now, did he bring his wife back again? Uh, his wife did come with him. Uh, she was uh, quite quite as unwell as he was, as a matter of fact, for the first uh, the first uh, few months, um, having come via India. It must have been kind of extraordinary to be in the role, to watch it all all happen and to see the Federation formed and for them to be playing a role in it. Do do we have any records of what he thought of it personally? I think that generally, I mean, his sort of papers have been um, uh, protected, I think, uh, in in archives and and that sort of thing. But uh, he, he always spoke, as I say, the consummate professional. He knew what his role was to be effusive about uh, about federation about australia about its place within the empire so his public statements were always very um very powerful in and in favor in a, in that sort of uh, aristocratic imperial way uh, of of federation so but what kind privately of, i'm not sure, I'm not sure. What, what kind of governor general was he well uh he was a particularly ideal choice popularity wise and the fact that everybody actually knew who he was uh he had a, a bit of a leg up in the fact that he was not only the first governor general, uh, but he was also um, supervising the visit of uh, the Duke of Cornwall, who was later King George V, to arrive to to open Parliament. Um, and so he had the the added glamour and glitz of a royal visit. Uh, he did become a little bit unpopular with parliamentarians and with politicians not just because of the Hopeton blunder, but because he insisted upon maintaining his own secretary, his own household. Um, he also offended the state governors uh, because he demanded to see certain state documents that uh, nobody really thought he was entitled to see. Um, <laughs> what but what of sort course, of things? What? Well, uh, state papers relating to uh, the issuing of honours and, and these sorts of things that uh, really... Uh, because, of course, this is a brand new role. The, the state governors have been essentially laws unto themselves with no one between them and the monarch for so long uh, that suddenly they they have this sort of interjection above them. No one's really quite sure what rights the the Governor-General has vis-à-vis the other state governors. And, of course, he took his role extremely seriously, so he wasn't wasn't just saying, oh, it's all right, I don't really need to see those papers. He was very committed to his role. Um, He also made some rather partisan political speeches uh, towards the beginning of 1902, uh, which offended the leader of the opposition, the famous yes-no Reid, um, and he actually began to publicly question what the role of the Governor-General was, so that these are questions that have echoed all the way down through our history. Um, he was a pro-imperialist, he spoke in favour of the Boer War, but he also, acting for the imperial government in London, uh, did, to a certain extent, interfere with certain Australian politics, which Barton and others questioned his, his right to, to, to interfere in. He, he resisted signing the Immigration Act, the White Australia policy, into law until it had been amended to meet um, British sensibilities. Uh, again, this, this compounds the question, what is the Governor-General's role? Is he a representative of an independent nation-state or is he a representative of the imperial government keeping tabs on the colonies? It's a it's a very interesting kind of setup. So early on as well. How did he manage his budget? Was he continuing with this lavish lifestyle? He did continue with the lavish lifestyle. He had a pretty sizable income, uh, ten thousand uh, pounds a year salary, but he there was actually some confusion. His um, fellow aristocrats, who were say governors of of Canadian states or uh, sorry provinces or the governor general of Canada, had always received their salary, but then had had incidental allowances on top of that. 
And he actually presented a bill to Edmund Barton uh, for eight, an additional £8,000. Um, Barton, of course, at this stage thought that this was an appropriate amount to request, but the Parliament rejected it. Mm-hmm. So it was extremely embarrassing for him, and indeed he wasn't very well at the time. He actually used this as his excuse to, to leave the job um, in, in July of 1902. He continued to be GG until uh, January of 1903 when they'd selected a successor. And when what happened when he returns home? Well, he was still very popular with the public in Australia, particularly in Melbourne. Um, he he left to, well, cheers, flag waving on the on the uh, on the the docks. Um, he had, however, sort of outstayed his welcome with the politicians, so they weren't exactly upset to see him go. Um, before his ter- his term had expired, King Edward the Seventh, the new monarch, actually uh, elevated him further in the peerage to to Marquess of Linlithgow. Uh, for his service to the empire, but he wasn't well for the rest of his life. He served briefly in the last great conservative unionist ministry of Arthur Balfour. He was uh, Secretary of State for his native Scotland in 1905, but he eventually died in 1908. He wasn't very old at all at the time. Goodness me. So John Hope, the KT, GCMG, GCVO, PC. <laughs> I've always wanted to be the have a God calls me God. But, yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> um, what, what's his legacy, particularly that he... Was even questioning that that fundamental role in the in the very earliest of times when we saw it begin. I think if you are the sort of person who looks to governors and governors general as significant actors in Australian history, then you would be looking directly at that question about he established not only the role of the governor general, but also established immediately the debate over the role of the governor general. Because beyond that, really, he is, and beyond the Hopeton blunder, which he'll forever be known <laughs> for, um, and however you interpret that as a clueless aristocrat with no idea about what really Australian history is like, or a man of his times, beyond that, really, I, I just have to think of the, the really grand statue in my native Melbourne, just uh, in St Kilda Road opposite the Victoria Barracks. The fact that they put his statue, the Marquis of Linlithgow, on this, this, this striding stallion, um, at the junction of Government House Drive of the main thoroughfare to the city, Birdwood Avenue, Linlithgow Avenue as it is now as well, and also Anzac Avenue where the Shrine of Remembrance is. He is at the centre of ceremonial Melbourne, and yet people will always march past him. They'll say, oh, we'll meet under the statue for the Anzac, uh, Anzac Day Dawn service. Which statue? Oh, you know, the guy on the horse. <laughs> um, it's really it's quite unfortunate, I think, that he's, he's hardly known in that sense, but... Uh, It's funny, from my childhood I always remember seeing that that statue and thinking of it significantly. 